cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with me, Kingsley Kipuri, on the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. Then I'll be with me for the next hour. Um, my comrade Greg Nicholson is not in studio with us today, so you'll have to bear with just me. You may also notice I've got a case of the man flu, so you'll also have to persevere with that too. I mean, we all get the flu, but I feel like when men get it, it's it's particularly spectacular. You know, we're aching and we're moaning and making sure everybody knows in how much pain we are. So you'll have to persevere with me uh, throughout the next hour. But really, thank you for joining us, and I'm really excited to spend the next hour with you. Today we'll be continuing what I feel is now a national conversation, thankfully, uh, about gender-based violence. Um, with the sort of tragic news of Karabo Mokwena a few weeks ago and just continuing stories coming to the surface of murder, of kidnapping, of, of, of harm, of rape, continuously on a day-to-day basis of, of women and girls in South Africa, I believe. And I'm glad that there's sort of a, a, a resurfacing of the outrage that pours out once in a while when these things happen. So we're looking to continue that and channel that um, and look Perhaps more at a, at a more sort of process and system level and say, what are the key pieces that, that contribute to, to fixing this? So where, what is a medical angle? What is a judicial and criminal justice angle? What is a sociocultural and element? And, 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 and how do we have a better understanding of the different pieces that fit into this? Um, Greg had a wonderful metaphor this, uh, which is when we talk about ESCOM, people have a pretty decent sense of the different pieces, right? Whether you talk about energy mix or you talk about affordability or you're talking about, you know, load shedding and, and, and we've, regardless of what side you're on, we can agree on the, we can agree on the sort of, when we're having an energy debate, we can agree on the sort of the center of, uh, you know, of, of facts or different levels that we need to discuss to move forward, right? But, we feel uh, that when it comes to issues of, you know, of, of rape and gender-based violence, uh, for some reason, we lose that. Perhaps it's because it can be a very emotional issue, understandably. Um, but we, we, you know, there seems to be calls for capital punishment or a call for this. But we, we feel perhaps there needs to be a, a better understanding. What are the preventative measures that are working? Uh, what are the preventative measures that need help scaling up? What are the preventative measures that need more awareness or more help? Uh, what's the role of community engagement and activism? What is the role of criminal justice? Does criminal justice work at all? So we're going to be hoping to push that conversation forward and, and I'll be joined by, you know, very sort of esteemed and educated people who've worked in this field for, for a long time on a community level, <laughs> at a national level. And I'll have to go to them shortly because they're making faces at me. We have Nonklantla Skosana, who's a community mobilizer from Sonke Gender Justice. Nonklantla, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Why Thanks are you making faces us. when I call you an the expert? introduction is very scary. <laughs> no, you're doing excellent work and you should not, not be ashamed of that. Okay. Also, we have Maurice Smithers, who's the executive director of the Yeovil Community Development Trust. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Also, I, do you accept the mantle of somebody who's well, doing good work in this? We do what we can. <laughs> <laughs> but genuinely, thank you both for joining me. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to sort of start to have this conversation. So I'd love to start with sort of, you know, case study for lack of, of, you know, a better term, which can be very academic, but I think it's important before we jump into policy and process, you know, it can sound quite abstract, but I feel if, you know, if we ground it in, in something that's happening in reality, I feel like that'd be quite helpful as we move forward. So Maurice, just coming to you, I'd love if you could sort of talk us through what happened in the case of one sort of Patrick uh, Wisani, who about two years ago, if I'm not wrong, was, mm-hmm. was alleged to have beaten his, his partner to death. And that, and that, and that case recently came to an end. So I'd love if you just sort of talk us through right from the beginning. Who was Patrick Wasani and, and what is this case that happened? Okay. Well, Patrick Wasani, um, he was at the time that, that he was arrested. He was, um, I think, active in the community police forum. Mm. He was also the re, uh, zonal leader of the ANC um, Youth League yeah. um, in Johannesburg. I knew I knew him. I'd uh, been around him in the area for quite some time uh, because of uh, living there myself and working in the area and got to know him not very well, um, but uh, observed his his development as he came into the area because he wasn't from the area originally. He came from uh, from elsewhere, I think from Soweto, I'm not sure, Uh, and uh, observed how he quickly got sucked into... A very negative um, and, and, uh, and, and antisocial mode of behavior 
which was linked to politics and police and corruption and uh, a whole range of uh, a whole range of factors. But the key thing about, around this particular case, for me, hinges on something that happened in 2012, um, where he was he was actually alleged to have beaten a woman in a shabin so badly that that she ended up in a coma. And at the time, I was on the police forum, mm. and uh, we arranged for him to be suspended from the police forum because he had been chairperson of sector one of the of the police forum and we said look you know you you can't be accused of this kind of activity and carry on being a member of the of the of the the cpf and therefore mm. uh, it's got to get sorted out before you can continue to to serve here so he was suspended and uh, what was interesting was first of all the police were very reticent about charging him I didn't make any real effort to to support the family or support anybody in the community that wanted actually for him to be charged. But then there was a meeting that was held mm. to elect someone as the chairperson of the of the sector. And in that particular meeting, uh uh he was nominated uh for for the position that he was suspended from. Which was quite extraordinary. So mm. I raised the question in the meeting. It was about 50 people, including, you know, some senior leaders in the community. And I raised the question of why, uh, surely he, he shouldn't be allowed to stand because we just had a conversation about the kinds of qualities a person should have mm. to be a leader. And secondly, he's still facing this case. Lo and behold, not one single person in the room supported me. And that included the head of the police station. The ward councillor, the uh, the head of the um, CPF cluster, and a representative from the office of the MEC for community safety, plus other leader, leaders in the community who had been on the CPF and mm. who were in other structures and so on. Not one single person supported me. So the message, and this is quite critical in my view to what happened in 2015, mm. the message that Patrick Wasani received on that day was it's okay to beat women, we will defend you. Okay, we will support you, we will back you, we will protect you. How, instead, if the message to him had been very clear, you have done, you know, you're alleged to have done wrong, until it's sorted out, you're going to have to be resolved, but we're going to sit down with you and talk to you, talk you through these issues, explain to you, you know, try and understand why you did this thing, yep. uh, and so on. Provided leadership, provided guidance, didn't happen. And, you know, three years later, he did exactly the same, uh, even worse, assaulted his, his partner. Uh, you know, uh, on the previous occasion, it wasn't his partner. Um, he assaulted her and beat her to death with, uh, uh, in court, they said that he was, he was so filled with rage. Uh, that, uh, you know, he actually went beyond what anybody could have possibly expected. That, you know, she basically bled to death. She had 40, uh, 40, uh, distinctive wounds on her body. My, in my view, the seeds for that event mm. in, in September 2015 mm. were sown back in 19, in 2012. I mean, absolutely. I mean, on an extreme, you expect that, you know, the idea would be at the very least serious social shaming for once sure. this news exactly. comes out. Um, at the very least, some roadblocks, if you're, if you're elevated or put forward for a leadership position, at the very least, you'd expect there to be some roadblocks between you and that position. And it sounds like there were absolutely none. There were none. And I, and I think that's an endemic problem in our society that, that, uh, men get protected in these kinds of situations. Absolutely. You know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of acceptance. That men can talk about these things, do these things, and unless they overstep certain bounds, like the, in the case of Wasani yeah. when he actually killed uh, his, his his partner, and you know the, you couldn't hide that anymore. But mm -hmm. even then, we were worried about whether, in fact, he was going to get properly charged. We were worried that that maybe there was be some kind of political gerrymandering or something of that nature which would get him off. Um, but I think that happens in society a lot. That people get protected. They get, they get. Uh, uh, it's somehow tolerated. Um, and then we wonder, 
why people do these things. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you've, you've, you've jumped now. So that happened in 2012. We're now in 2015. And, you know, th- it emerges that, you know, there's, the char- charges are formally pressed that this, he's alleged to have killed his partner but beaten her to death. And during that trial, I mean, that trial started in 2015, right? And this is, this was resolved quite recently. Sort of, there's a lot of questions to be asked about what played out in there. I mean, one of those is the is the issue of bail. Could you just speak about about how bail was set and how that affected his ability to then access people who were willing to to testify that he was actually the killer? Well, the what? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, the bail was set at a very low level. In fact, it was quite ironic because in the same week that he was given bail of three thousand rand. 14 students who were part of the Fees Must Fall campaign, mm. the initial one, in Cape Town had attempted to uh, to enter parliament and were arrested. And each one of them was released on bail in the same week. What was the bail amount? 3,000 rand. So, uh, you know, the fact that somebody's, somebody's lost their life, yep. uh, uh, and that is equated with just Going into parliament to go and protest about something that you, both people get charged 3,000 rand bail. I mean, so the, the, the second thing is that Patrick, he was then, he was uh, given bail and he was supposed to live in the West Rand. He was supposed to report to the West Rand police every day and so on. He basically didn't uh, really follow through. Mm. He was seen in Yeovil a number of times. Nobody reported it. The police weren't really following up. Um, on him And so yes He was able to have This kind of Threatening presence If you like um, uh, For the people Who were Who, who were going to give evidence mm. And then um, In April in, in, in May Of 2016 He in fact assaulted uh, The twin sister Of Of the woman That he had killed uh, In an attempt to To uh, um Intimidate her into silence because mm. she mm. was going to give evidence yep. against him and also beat up her friend who was with her at the time. Fortunately, and I have to say, and I've said this a number of times and I'll say it again, I was completely astonished at the bravery of um, the three women, the three key witnesses, which is the sister, the twin sister, another woman living in the house where they, where the event took place. Um, and, and then the, the other woman who was assaulted with the sister. All of them testified uh, in court, despite the fact that um, they were under such threat. Despite the fact that um, that it was not just Wasani yeah. himself, yeah. but the problem is that around Wasani, mm. there's a group of people as well um, who also uh, were being quite threatening towards them, um, and yet they they withstood uh, they withstood the intimidation and actually carry, and actually did it. But I mean, the fact is that he he used that opportunity to do that. Yeah, I mean that raises. The, I mean, the issue of bail. So I know I know that a lot of people say that the criminal justice system mm. is is limited when dealing with something like violence. Sure. But surely that's a key thing that's worth bringing up. And what what is mm. the role of bail when somebody can go back and you know intimidate witnesses and and cause further harm? Is mm. that is that something you see as a key? Well, I mean, if, at least if they had a, if they had a, if, if they were serious mm. about monitoring the yeah. movement of the people, yeah. uh, and making sure that they comply with what they do. Uh, um, I mean, I remember, to give you an, a completely different example, back in the 1980s, yeah. uh, when people were banned, um, you know, they had to report to a police station once a week. Mm. Um, uh, and if you didn't report to the police mm. station, you would get arrested. When Wasani was, uh, when they w- went looking for him after he assaulted the sister, uh, in, in Hillbrow, they couldn't find him because he wasn't staying at the place where he was mm. supposed to be staying. Yeah. Did they ever check? You know, so, so the point is, if you're going to release people on bail, and I'm, I'm not saying that, I mean, the bail system is an international system. That's how it works. Yeah. You get released on bail, um, because it's deemed to be, un, you know, prejudicial to your rights if mm. you just kept, get kept in jail mm. when you're not actually convicted. Uh, so if you're going to release people, at least make sure you put systems in place that will prevent them from, uh, from, from abusing that situation. And absolutely. And, and continuing with the, with the case, there were also significant sort of judicial issues. One with a judge who was, you know, I think I'm, I'm not sure if this has been said openly, but seemed to be 
incompetent or at least very confused with what was happening. Look, I think I think yeah. we should be careful yeah. about that case. Okay. I don't know if you know that he actually committed suicide okay. um, just before the trial ended, okay. uh, before the, the, the sentencing was done recently. And apparently he was very depressed. Okay. Was on medication and so on and so forth. And, um, so it was, it was a very unfortunate situation, mm. to be honest. I mm. mean, we were very concerned because we were observing this thing and, and we were very worried about whether justice would be done. Fortunately, the prosecutor, um, much more experienced than we were, I guess, in, in court matters, mm. realized there was a problem okay. and, and asked him to recuse himself. And I suppose to the judge's credit, did. he did agree to recuse himself. But that did cause a delay Absolutely. because then we had to start the whole trial again with a new judge okay. um, who, I must say, I think handled the case incredibly well and um, gave a very reasoned judgment at the end, yeah. even though we weren't totally satisfied mm. with mm. the sentence. Thank you for correcting me. I did not know that. And you're yeah. right. No, that, no, it's not public knowledge. Okay. It was briefly reported yeah. in the paper, but um, it was a very sad case, actually. Oh, thank you for yeah. that. But I'm, I'm curious, and maybe the answer is yes. And I'm just thinking in a lower profile case, you know, with you know, with, with a different set of lawyers, do you feel that there's, do you feel that the prosecution on the other side is has the ability to say something's amiss here and, and, and is able to get perhaps apply pressure for a judge to recuse himself or for that sort of thing to happen? Does that happen in a lower profile case? Do you see that happening? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I think a prosecutor is a prosecutor, and if a prosecutor feels that there's a problem, uh, I guess he or she can actually uh, uh, raise that kind of an issue. Uh, whether the judge will respond and whether also they, – they knew, both of them, the judge and the prosecutor, knew that they were in the limelight because – we as civil society were paying a lot of attention to the case yeah. and we had also managed to galvanize some media, not enough, uh, uh, but we had managed to galvanize some media to, to, to cover the case. So I guess that may have had some impact. Mm. And so maybe you're right. Maybe uh, a much lower profile case would, it would be more difficult. Yeah. Okay. Um, and lastly, just the element of sort of uh, lawyer fees and, and ability to pay. Some of the delays were around. Uh, you know, claims that, that, that Wasani could not, could not pay his lawyers. I mean, on one hand, you have perhaps the liberal stalling tactics. We don't know, but I'm just thinking of the, the wider issue of just people's ability to afford legal teams and, and, and competent legal teams. Is that, do you also see that as a barrier to effective justice on matters like this? Well, I think so. I mean, look, in, in, in case, the, the, uh, you must remember some murder cases get dealt with in the magistrate's court. Yeah. And the reason why, uh, as I understand it, and I learned, we learned quite a bit from this case, what I understand from the, ca- from the, if it's a, if it's a cut and dried mm. case, in other words, the person was observed, there are witnesses, they were observed doing the deed, and so on and so forth. If there's pretty, pretty well very little doubt mm. that the person actually did it mm. then the case will get dealt with in the magistrate's court however if there is you know in, in the case of Wasani nobody actually saw it happening um, people heard the screaming and uh, they went to the room and Wasani came out with a broomstick in his hand mm. with blood on it So, but it was circumstantial evidence okay. so when a case like that happens it gets mm. taken to the high court mm. once it goes to the high court it becomes extremely difficult for anyone yeah. because advocates just charge huge amounts of money um, so I think there was a genuine I think that I don't think it was just delaying tactics I okay. think it was genuinely okay. that Wasani didn't have money he's not a rich person he was living in a hijacked house in, in, in Yeovil um, and, and, you know, um, just getting peace jobs through government projects and that kind of stuff. He wasn't, he, he wasn't a wealthy person at all. Um, and, uh, even, uh, so, so eventually he was offered legal mm. aid mm. and turned it down mainly because he f- couldn't reach agreement with legal aid and then okay. defended himself. Um, until, until the end when he had to get an advocate to, to help him in the sentencing process. Yeah. But I, th- I do think that the, that the judicial, the justice system is not accessible to, to, although you see, you must remember in a, in a, in a, in a case like that, in, in a criminal case, uh, um, the prosecutors, uh, you know, are the ones who arguing the case. Um, uh, so it's whether people can defend themselves, um, adequately or not. In this case, I think Wasani had plenty of opportunity to do that. And, okay. yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the, the evidence was too much against him and he was convicted. Thank goodness. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, I'm curious about the role of sort of community action and, Sort of, sort of civil society paying attention to something and say, hey, this is something where, that we need to pay attention to and make sure sort of justice is served and make sure that there's enough public attention on this. Now, we haven't heard from you yet. Um, I'm curious about 
what do you think the role of civil society was in a case like this? Um, do you do you think there are key times where that 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 galvanized element and that element of pointing attention to it enabled uh, enabled justice to be served better or, in, or or enabled better outcomes in any way? Um, I I really think so because in in the Yovel Belville co- uh, coalition, we had a different number of stakeholders. You know, organisations that have been there. You know, dealt with such cases. Um, we had Power. We know that POWA is, is experienced in terms of dealing with cases mm. of domestic violence mm. and gender-based violence. But we also had the lawyers for human rights who were like giving us legal um, advice. And we had organizations that like our two who are more skilled in terms of community work. So in terms of monitoring the case, like what Maurice was saying, mm. engaging with the prosecutor because one thing that we, we, we observe in our communities is that members of our community don't know or they are not geared up in, in a way that they could even start questioning issues around the investigation of the case because mm. even in this very same case we had to you know uh, probe that the investigating officer be changed so those are some of the things that community members might not have the kind of of, of uh, information but when you are a number of organizations mm. and stakeholders working mm. together capable of being able to be uh, exposing that kind of uh, information and also in this case you know in engaging with the NPA having me Meetings with the NPA regarding this case, I think those are kind of the strengths of community of civil society organisations. So, for me, I would say our involvement in in this case and monitoring from onset until the end. Even you know, the judge could see a number of people who were there, women yeah. and men from Yovo mm, who were there. Mm, so. Mm. Uh, I could say he did his job very well, but also I think the pressure that they got, uh, uh, both of them, the prosecutor and the judge, yep. as Morit has said, you know, it's, 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 it has really, you know, assisted in terms of saying, um, we get this kind of sentence that was, was, was issued out as much as we were not happy about it. Yep. And I think it, it is important that civil society organization work together yep. and, you know, pull the kind of resources that they have to make sure that, you know, Victims and their families are being supported and they get the proper services. And one thing that I also would like to highlight is the fact that we need to have, you know, community engagement regarding these kind of cases and being able to um, educate our communities about the, our justice system and what are their rights and how I c- they can engage with, with the system as well. I mean, absolutely. Um yeah, I mean, thank you to both for that awesome sort of, not awesome, but <laughs> important breakdown of, I think, uh, I think just looking at so, sort of some of the steps where things that are supposed to happen don't happen or don't quite happen, mm-hmm. I think just illustrates how sort of complex the challenges are. And, and hopefully that's a, that's a good starting point into, as we move towards solutions. Yeah. And also, I think, yeah. you know, um, with the Wissani case, it was mm. a very, um, Scary case. Yeah. People were not free to talk. They were intimidated. You know, they felt that they're not safe because of, you know, the kind of, um, relationships that we Sunny had. Mm. He mm. even mentioned that some of the SAPS guys are on his payroll. Mm. So he had, you know, very, uh, 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 useful relationships to him and I think he even thought he would get away with it because the manner in which he handled himself, you know, even if he was presenting and representing himself, mm. he was, you know, very sure of himself because he, he knows who he's connected to. But unfortunately, because this case was monitored and he was even asked, why do you think the media is so interested into this mm. case? And mm. he, was say, he also said, I am also shocked, you know. So this this was not something that he thought it would really happen. Yeah. And he thought he would really manage to go away with it as he was always doing. So community involvement, civil society organization working together, sharing the skills that they have, it makes it possible for, 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 for the victim and the family not to carry the burden of finances in terms of being able to attend the course. Because we know that most of uh, victims and families, they just decide not to go on with the case because it becomes a bit expensive. And a bit taxi, emotional.
emotionally and psychologically. I mean, but two it's, years. It took it's, for two it's a years, long right? time. Yeah. So as, as we contributed from mm. one organization to another financially with the skills that organization had, that brought that day where I think you know, really yeah. find some peace. Yeah. Thank you. That's incredible work from, from you personally and the both of you. Um, I'd love to sort of pivot towards something that Sonki has been quite vocal in, in pushing for, which is a, which is a national strategic plan on gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a country where we hear a lot about plans and we hear a lot about sort of frameworks and task teams, a lot of people cringe when they hear, sorry, a lot of people cringe when they hear we need a plan or we need a lot of people cringe and say, oh no. Mm-hmm. That thing is going to happen again Where people go off They develop policy They take a year They do a task team And we never hear about it again Could you tell us a bit about Why you're so Sort of adamant And and, and, and pushing for National strategic plan And how that differs From the integrated program That we have now Mm -hmm. Um, I think we have learned How well the HIV and AIDS National strategic Mm. plan worked Mm. So we're benchmarking on that Because you know It also covers on issues Of prevention And and also, you know, services for, for the victims. And we also say this plan will be costed. We would know how much it costs because we know the KPMG report, it has really highlighted how much South Africa is losing in terms of the money that is used to deal with gender-based violence. Mm. They are costing it in around 24 to 42 billion rands. And if we can have the plan and be able, the plan will, will also involve a number of uh, civil society organizations and we know that um, we had a GPV council that was, you know, had a very slow death and just disappeared in thin air and that council will also assist in terms of saying how do we monitor this uh, national strategic plan on GPV. So this is well, you know, worked plan and uh, a number of organizations, about 48 organizations are involved in terms of developing this plan and pushing and advocating for this plan to happen. Okay. And, and is there an element of perhaps better coordination? And Maurice, you can jump in here about saying once, once you have a national strategic plan, there suddenly is a, a platform for sort of different arms of government, different arms of civil society to not sort of be unified under sort of an umbrella. That now works sort of in a coordinated way in one direction. Is that something that perhaps needs more work? Well, I think, I think it has to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the reality is that, I mean, it's quite, it's quite good to see that, uh, right now there's a mm. lot of, um, we, in fact, we, we're trying to understand why there's so much uh, attention being paid to the issue of gender-based violence in the last two weeks because mm. it, it's, for me, it's an open question as to whether, in fact, there are that many more cases yeah. or is it just a, a kind of coincidence that the Wasani case uh, uh, sentencing happened on the same day that the Karabo mm. case became big news yeah. and then a number of other cases came out as well. The problem is that it's just, just like with xenophobia, it's going to die down yeah. and then people will forget about it and life will carry on as normal. Um, because this is not the first time that this kind of attention has been paid to GBV. Um, uh, and then just kind of become gone off the agenda because something else has come onto the agenda. So I think having a proper plan yeah. that then engages with civil society and government uh, uh, on a consistent and ongoing basis, I think, is going to actually uh, will, will actually be much better. Because the, the the challenge we have, I think, is 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 also reaching an understanding of what needs to be done. Okay. I mean, you mentioned earlier on. Uh, uh, capital punishment, people, yeah. you know, and I had a, happened to have a conversation yeah. yesterday with yeah. a guy who works in our garden and we were talking about this GBV issue and he was saying, uh, he was saying to me, bring back the death penalty. Uh, I'm reminded also that when we were interviewed after the sentencing that the, the media said to us, do you think that this thing is going to, yeah. uh, uh, the sentence is going to dissuade other people from committing rape, uh, committing murder? It's not. Yeah. Uh, if it did, you know, the, the people know that people are getting sentenced. I mean, yeah. there's, there was, there's big news with a number of different uh, cases like the Pistorius case yeah. and various other cases where uh, uh, it's been very, very public. Mm. But people carry on doing these things. So, uh, the judicial system is not going to solve the problem. Society has to solve the problem. And we need to look at what's happening in society. What are we doing consciously or subconsciously in society to create the Wasanis of this world. Mm. 
uh, to create the uh, I've forgotten Karabo's uh, the the guy who killed Karabo. What are we doing to create those people? Because they don't come from nowhere. I hear you, and I think that's probably part of the fear is that when we when we frame the problem as such a big one, perhaps it it paralyzes us a bit. I know I need to let you both go. Uh, I'm just curious about on the immediate um, sort of response side of things that we do now. Um, are there any things that we're doing well? Some people mentioned the Tutuzela centers as something that, that 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 that's working, and perhaps if we if we put more resources towards and and scaled up a bit, that's something that we're doing now. That that's a, perhaps an easy win. Just do that more of that thing. Non-clank, are you able to say anything about that? Yeah, I think yeah. in terms of the available structures, yeah. we have what we call the victim empowerment officers in each and every police station. Are they working? That is questionable. I think we need to be able to monitor that. Yeah. It is a good idea. It could mm. assist because people have access to police stations. Mm. To Zela care centers, we've got 51 of them in this country. They are based in public hospital. Yes, some of them, they are working very well. Some of them, they still have challenges. Okay. So I think Lisa has made some kind of uh, assessment of all the Tutuzela centers, highlighted the gap. The major gap is the NGOs who are providing psychosocial support to the victims of domestic violence or gender-based violence. We need funding for those. And that is why we are pushing for the NSP, GPV, that, you know, we need to cost that and be able to provide resources to different stakeholders who are trying to deal with gender-based violence in this country. And I hear you, you can't escape the fact that until this is fully costed and in the budget and until there's clear outcomes that can be tracked and people held accountable for, you know, mm. we won't get where we need to get. I mean, I think it should be mentioned that that that, that uh, uh, there are, you know, we talk about Sonki, we talked about power today, yeah. but there are a myriad Organizations around the country that are trying to deal with this issue, mm. and we're talking about some organizations that are up, of, of, of women in, in particular, but men also sometimes who come together to try and deal with these issues, and they do it on a shoestring budget, and they do it with absolute commitment, absolute dedication, dealing with quite horrific situations. So even the people who get engaged in these things themselves become traumatized. And become probably victims mm. of post-traumatic stress disorder, having to deal with the traumas of other people who've been assaulted, raped, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, so I think I think one has to actually acknowledge the incredible work that has been done, and the fact that society as a whole doesn't support the work that's been done by these organisations. That's where the problem lies. That's where the where the challenge lies is how do we and that's why I say society as a whole has to take responsibility for this and not just to go on a march or to you know make a bit of noise in the newspaper and so on but to actually in a consistent way deal with these from school you know in schools and in churches uh, in in faith based organisations what are we doing how are we handling things what are we talking about what kind of you know uh, things are we tolerating and accepting. Uh, you know, or is it that we, you know, that, that we, that it's like the Trump mentality, you know, where you talk about locker room talk, where people do things and say things, uh, 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 which are somehow deemed to be acceptable, but not realizing what that's doing to the consciousness mm. of the people who actually are hearing these things and saying these things. And we have an example right now of, of, um, uh, the minister in the president's office, Jeff Khadebe, exchanging these bizarre sexual, uh, 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 exchanges with, with a photographer, uh, who's like 40 years younger than him. Uh, uh, and he's supposed to be like a, a leading pillar of society and has been up until now. Yeah. And yet somehow it's, it's okay to send those kinds of messages to somebody. Uh, it's okay to, it's deemed to be okay until you get caught. You know, then suddenly it's a big issue. But when people do that kind of thing, um, and it gets tolerated. That's what then builds this kind of mentality mm. that people have. Mm. So we've got to look at it, you know, right? What are we doing in our homes? How are we bringing up our kids? Just think about how many families bring up their kids to make boys believe that they are better than girls, that women must serve them. Women must, you know, that they are, and, and girls are geared to believe that as they grow up, they are there to serve and service men. You know, these are the kinds of things that we as a society are doing and which we are, which lay the, the, the foundation for the kind of 
mentality of people who then do the kind of things that Rasani does or all of the other many, mm. many, many, mm. many people in mm. the country that actually do these things on a daily basis. It's happening right now as we speak. You're right. You can it's be a, absolutely sure that yeah. a woman in South Africa is being beaten yeah. or raped. And also, yeah. I think one thing that I would also just like to highlight is the fact that men are now responding. Yeah. But how are you responding? How are you responding? Because uh, I was talking to Maurice on our way here mm. to say we had this big match in Pretoria yeah. where, you know, men were saying they're taking responsibility. They not want in to my be name. not in my name. But what are they doing? They are now calling the victims of sexual violence to come telling their stories. And those victims are women, about mm. four of them. And they have this kind of uh, an artwork of a woman who's wearing a white dress we're saying we need men to tell their own stories, mm-hmm. their stories of change who were uh, uh, perpetrators of gender based violence, how did they change and how can they get engaged with one another and change the language that they use when they talk about women You know about the kind of violence that they perpetrate against women so we're having this match on, 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 on the 26th on Friday in Soweto I hope the narrative will change because now we, we've heard about Garabo, we've heard about Nosipo and you know we, we heard about the number of lesbian women who are killed in our community, we need to see men changing and we're saying there are resources as as, as Sonke and other organization mm, TAC mm. we have material that we can give to them and say this is what these are the steps that you need to take and this is how you need to deal with uh, uh, victims of, 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 of gender based violence so we're just saying let's let's stop putting women in front as cases mm. deal with the problem I, I think Greg's story, if I'm, I think it was Greg. Yeah, it was Greg Nicholson, Wrote a story yeah. uh, last week where he did exactly that. He spoke about, he spoke about an incident when he was like 14 or 15 years mm. old or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, with a bunch of boys sitting around drinking mm. and, you know, talking in with male bravado and so on with a situation where there was a young, uh, a, a girl with them as well. Who, who, uh, uh, also got a bit drunk and ended up, um, behind the bushes with men lining up to go and get oral sex from her. And Greg says he didn't participate in himself because he was too shy. But the fact is he never challenged it. He never said, no, but this is unacceptable. Mm. Why are we doing this? And I think that that's the kind of thing yeah. because, you know, and, and we've all got those stories. Mm. I can tell you all of us. As men yep. have got those stories, I, I would I would challenge any man to say that they don't have those stories. Yep. That something happened in their lives when they they sp- had a conversation with somebody, or they observed something happening, or they did something themselves, and they didn't question what they were doing. They didn't question the 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 the, the ethics, the, the 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 values that uh, were contained in the thing that thing that they did. And Absolutely. that's, and I think, and Nantlantla's right. We need to, we need to, uh, we need to face up to those things and, and acknowledge them because that's the, that's the, the step towards changing things. We can't point fingers and say, and as Nantlantla was saying, is a lot of, you know, me, uh, what is the phrase they've been using? Men are trash. trash. Men are trash, yeah. yes. Trash. And then people are saying, no, but not all men yeah, are, tra-. Not. you know, the fact is that at the end of the day, um, if, unless we as men, mm. Actively on a day-to-day basis Take part in stopping These kinds of things happening And changing society We're part of the problem I'm glad that that's come up I think that's important We can't get away from it uh, Maurice Smithers Thank you so much for spending time with me and, and talking us through Some of the really important work you're doing Thank you for having Thank us you. Those Pleasure. tuning in We're just going to go to a quick break And we'll be right back after this Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Mavic Show on CliffCentral.com. We're just going to the last portion of the show where we're discussing gender-based violence and trying to see where are the things in the system that fall apart, where are the things that we need to do better. We spoke a bit about issues of a national strategic plan and a lack of coordination nationally, a lack of a budget, a lack of tangible outcomes that we can hold people accountable to using. Talk a bit about criminal justice, where the the bail system falls apart, where issues of competent judges, uh, instances of lawyers and lawyer fees that people can afford. Last, we're going to speak a bit about prevention. What are some of the things that we can do beforehand that make people less likely to commit uh, these kinds of these kinds of crimes? On the line, we have Noabisa. 
Shai, who's at the Gender, Div- Gender and Health Division at the South African Medical Research Council. Nabisa, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Nabisa. So, Nabisa, um, I mean, your sort of area of expertise is really talking a bit about prevention and what's the stuff we're doing now that's working and that we can just need to put more attention to and try and scale up. First, I'd love if you could just talk a bit about uh, the idea of group-based interventions. What What is that and what are some of the results we're seeing out of those kinds of things? Okay. So uh, group-based interventions are participatory interventions that are standardized. Um, and they are meant to get a, a group of people with similar characteristics. So, for example, young men of a particular age or young women of a particular age. Um, and they come together to discuss uh, issues of common interest amongst themselves. Um, but the, the aspect of the kinds of interventions that we have been using mm. uh, for HIV prevention or gender-based violence prevention, the idea is that we, we use a, a number of participatory methods like role plays, drama, uh, group discussions, mm. uh, uh, critical reflection, but doing that as a group and getting everybody sharing together, whether it is similarities or differences in opinion experiences. And that gets a conversation going and, and, and helps people to reflect and even beyond the, the, the particular uh, setting of the, actual, uh, of the actual workshop. Okay, wonderful. One particular one that, uh, that, that's come up is one called Stepping Stones, which has shown uh, to be able to reduce men's uh, sort of likelihood to, to, to perpetrate uh, intimate partner violence. Could you talk a bit about this, this Stepping Stones program, how it works, and, and what are the results we're seeing from it? Okay, so Stepping Stones is one of those group-based interventions. Um, it was initially used as an HIV prevention intervention, but for South Africa, we had adapted it in order to include gender-based violence prevention. So mm. there's a very strong element that's focusing at building a gender equitable relationship where uh, there's, harmony, there's harmony and a good uh, assertive communication uh, with people, with, uh, between, I mean, amongst people who are in a, in a particular relationship. Mm. And it was looking at sexual relationships, hence the focus on, um, on, on gender-based violence within relationships, as well as looking at some of the, um, the, the different uh, forms of gender-based violence that also include non-partner rape. Um, and so what uh, Setting Stones has been able uh, to do it is that uh, it is, it, we worked with young people in South Africa um, where we grouped them according to men and women. Um, and the program itself allows participants to work separately uh, according to their gender groups but then they come together to have a peer session where men and women will share their ideas about particular experiences. So, for example, looking at expectations uh, 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 on, on, on what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a man, then you get people in a peer group setting, sharing these ideas and talking about what is fair about these social expectations, what is not fair about them, what is achievable uh, and what is not achievable, and being able to exchange ideas about what is fair on women or, or, or not fair on women, what is fair on men uh, and not fair on men. Um, and that is part of the component that's helping to build gender equitable ideas. And we do the same thing with sessions that also focus on um, on gender, understanding different forms of gender-based violence, understanding how the law works and what kinds of responses we have, for example, at the state level through the ability to, 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 to report that is covered under the Domestic Violence Act and, and also what kinds of uh, expectations we should have when we are using that and how the community themselves can support each other mm. in, in, when, 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 when a situation that involves, for example, domestic violence or care. I mean, these are, you know, clearly really very comprehensive programs and, uh, and your, your studies and sort of monitoring and evaluation processes are saying these things work. So I suppose the big question is how do we get more of these? How do we get these into more communities, into more homes, into more schools? I'd love if you could talk us through sort of the, the processes that have gone forth, or not the processes, but the track record of trying to scale projects like these. You mentioned another program called Sinovuyo um, that is sort of in the process of, of, of scaling and trying to get bigger. Could you talk us through uh, sort of the process of doing that and some of the challenges that come up when trying to, to get these uh, to, to impact more people? Well, scaling up is really a challenge because these interventions themselves, they involve uh, quite a lot of input in terms of financial as well as human resources. Mm. Um, but um, this can also be done um, 
at at, at a large scale, but at the same time, it just requires a proper alignment and integration with the current policies that are, are being implemented, for example, by departments like uh, social development. Um, so what we, with the example of Sinovuyo, where what we have is that we have a program that is looking at um, at a model that is covering issues around addressing issues of the child and the parent-child relationship. And that program has been uh, integrated with the work that is being uh, supported uh, and delivered through an agency that is supported by the Department of Social Development called Isilindi. And so what we have there, we have a community and youth care workers that are working uh, together in order to address issues, for example, of assisting uh, people within their homes within their homes to ensure well-being, uh, where they also provide practical uh, assistance on how to help with homework and how to help with, with, um, with, with, with uh, health issues. Also, psychosocial issues uh, are also addressed. And that program is, 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 is nicely integrated with, the, uh, with, with an existing uh, agency that is already implementing this kind of work. Mm. Um, but the challenge with that is that uh, we find that our our, our organization, existing organizations follow certain programs already, and being and being able to integrate with another new program that is standardized, possibly in a different way mm. to what is already existing, requires skills and requires a lot of support, and I suppose also it requires a lot more human resources, yeah. and that becomes a, a challenge. And with lack of funding. When it comes to, to, to scale up, we, we find that it's actually difficult to 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 to, to take these very good programs uh, into scale. And another challenge that we have with scale up is that um, we 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 don't have lots of, stud- of studies on these interventions that are talking to how uh, they can be co- how they can be costed. And so we don't know how much they're going to cost. Uh, but currently, we have two studies. One is setting stones with another program that is looking at livelihood uh, uh, strengthening, uh, working with young people in formal settlements that is uh, currently uh, uh, being run. We're having a randomized control trial taking place. And part of that is doing a, a big uh, costing uh, 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 component that is going to help us to be able to say how much is it going to cost any agency that takes up this intervention. And another challenge also mm. is that we need to be able to map the policies we have, the current actions that are being taken by different parties across the, the across government that are looking at violence prevention. So we have primary prevention uh, uh, that we need to focus on. And so we need to be able to group those policies that talk to that aspect, as well as the one that talks to the aspects of secondary prevention that's looking at, for example, the criminal uh, uh, justice a system and how it responds well to to, to, to cases that mm. come to, 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 to the state. And so we need to have this proper alignment in making sure that we have an oversight body that is looking at, at making sure that for the different types of levels of intervention, uh, we, we are able to address violence against children, violence against women, and also even perhaps uh, other violence prevention uh, programs that we have across the state. And you will find that these policies are existing, but they are often talking to each other, but in a disjointed way. Mm-hmm. And so through a, a, a dialogue forum that, is, that, that I'm currently uh, working uh, with, uh, with a group of other government departments like social development, um, the performance and evaluation uh, uh, department, uh, with other, other academia and, and civil society, we're trying to work at creating this map that's going to help us to integrate violence prevention practice and policy and come up with concise ways so that you can have, follow a certain roadmap of what do you do if you need a particular type of program. Uh, for example, if you want setting stones, who is it designed for? Who will it benefit? And who do you need? And what do you need in order to be able to implement it at a, at a, at a community level? And at a wide scale. Mabisa, thank you so much. I mean, I don't think I could possibly hope to sort of sum up some of the challenges as well as you have. It sounds like the issue of sort of coordination and oversight mm-hmm. and tangible outcomes, it seems like it's something we just can't escape. It, and it, lots of funding. Lots of funding. Thank you for yes. squeezing that in there. <laughs>
And of mm. course, um, the element that it sounds like we, we, we can't over rely on criminal justice. It sounds like it's, you know, like it's, it's limited. It's important and necessary, of course, but it sounds like we can't get away from the fact that these are social cultural issues and, and prevention yeah. needs to be rooted in conversations, in community based interventions. And, and perhaps we need to shift the conversation into, into that direction. And financial prevention is yeah. actually key because it is the foundation of our thinking. Yeah. So if you want to prevent violence before it happens, we need to do that at a, at, at a foundation level. Mm. So, for example, if we, have, we want to prevent violence against children, it means the parents need, need to, to, to adopt a, a certain way, for example, a different way to, to, to solve conflict, say, amongst, say, the parents themselves or within, amongst the adults within the family. And also, if we're thinking about ways at a community level, the conversations themselves need to be more gender equitable. Our attitude towards women and girls needs needs to be more gender equitable. And how we bring up boys also needs to to, to be looked at. And it it means that our entire conversation as South Africans needs, needs to change. And the most important people here are children because they are the ones who learn these behaviors from adults mm, and mm. they are the ones who are easy to influence because if you're thinking about socialization at the family level the parents are responsible for what the children know the community at large is responsible for what the community knows the teachers at, at schools are the ones that are informing the minds of these children and so if we talk about violence or we talk about risk factors for violence in a way that doesn't inculcate an understanding that violence is something that should not be taking place within our families, within our schools, within our community, then the children are not going to learn that. And so that is where we need to focus on. I couldn't put it better myself. Mabisa Shai from South African Medical Research Council, thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank you. Okay, wonderful. For those tuning in, thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Mavic Show on cliffcentral.com. I think it's clear there's a lot of work to do, but that should not paralyze us. Rather, that should, you know, spur us into action and say, what can we do? Um, whether it starts from attending this march that's coming up this, this 26th in Soweto, whether it starts from contributing and funding organizations like Sonke, like the South African Medical Research Council, whether it's having conversations as men, especially in our groups, in our, in our families, in our churches, in our sports teams of saying, what are we doing? Um, but I think the, 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 the message is clear that something has to change. I mean, South Africa's rate of the killing of women, femicide, is five times higher than the global average. Five times. Something fundamentally has to change, and we all have to be a part of making that happen. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. CliffCentral.com